Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Team Human is an ad-free community effort supported by real people like Reed, James Belding, Playful Citizen, Josh Winfield, and Beatrice Alonso. Join them and me and the rest of the team by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll get access to our Discord channel, live salons, free admission to our live events, and our Team Human team feed with special interviews, talks, and rare conversations. We're even starting a weekly group meditation. I hope to see you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to break from the programmed reality and instead accept ourselves and each other, saints and assholes alike. That we're just navigating our course through this confusing and irresolvable mess as best we can muster. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm down here on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, curator, writer, and researcher at the education platform Advaya, and student of engaged ecology at Schumacher College, Hannah Close. But what is perfect? It's not human. It's not, it's like perfection is anti-life. It's anti-aliveness. And there's something really raw and alive and like even erotic when you just recognize that you and the other person are covered in shit. Hannah's going to help us bring ourselves from mere reciprocity to true kinship. It's time to intervene on behalf of all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I was thinking a lot lately about, about haggling. You know, our, our inability, it feels like, as a society to, to haggle and negotiate directly. You know, either we, we're, we are uncompromised 
or we're like rushing for consensus as if like haggling with each other is some kind of a, a fight to the death or dirty conflict. It's strange, but I really, I do believe that, that a measure of a society in some ways is a measure of its ability to, to haggle. And I, I thought about this cause I was, I was rushing to class last week. I was late because of a bunch of stuff going on at home. So instead of taking the train, I, I hopped in the car and drove to the closest parking lot I could find to CUNY Journalism School, where I've, I've been teaching this semester. And it turned out to be uh, up on the roof of the Port Authority bus terminal. And as soon as I arrived up there, like right on the driving up the ramp to the top floor and I saw the sky and the parked cars, I realized I'd been there before. And was it like for Broadway show as a kid or something? And all of a sudden, a rush of memories washed over me. And I realized this was the same place where my grandfather parked his Cadillac that day back in like 1972 when he brought me along to watch him do his rounds ordering fabric in the old garment district of New York. My mother's father, we called him Bach, actually. It's a long story, but <laughs> Morris was his name. He had one of those typical grand rags to riches immigrant stories. And it was literally rags to riches. He was the oldest son of a successful fishmonger in Romania. But when the Jews were forbidden from fishing in Galatz, his father sent him to America to start a business and raise enough money to bring the rest of the family across. So a 14-year-old Morris Weintraub, he boarded a ship and like a lot of people, he got ill on the voyage across, and they put him to recover on Ellis Island or somewhere until he was well enough to take care of himself. And he went into New York and sold rags from the street on the Lower East Side until he had enough money for a push cart, and then enough money for a whole shop. And he was slowly bringing relatives over with the profits until all five brothers and two sisters and their parents were in America, and Weintraubs had grown into a chain of nine discount fabric stores from Groton, Connecticut, to Worcester, Massachusetts, and Providence, Rhode Island, that whole little stretch there. And the labor of the business, it was distributed between the brothers. And Morris, because he was the oldest and started it, he was like the boss and the buyer of the fabric. And he was a, a mythic figure in our family. So I was <laughs> suitably thrilled when he invited me, you know, it was like a, a <laughs> rite of passage, right? He invited me to accompany him on his day to sample and purchase inventory for the stores. So I met him at 6 a.m. outside their apartment building in Riverdale, where he's already waiting in his kind of orange, creamsicle-colored sedan deville. And he says, you're 10 minutes late. You know, he shouted 
at out the, the electric window of the car. I almost left without you. And to be fair, it was my parents' fault. But uh, he said that was no excuse if I was going to get ahead in this life. You know, the whole early bird catches the worm and how could I make him late? And so we arrived at the Port Authority, which he said was the cheapest lot in the area. And I got my tour of a city behind the city. You know, we'd go into a fabric store and everybody would know who he was and he'd go into the back and then up the stairs to a set of offices or we'd go down an alley into a side door and up a freight elevator and we'd arrive at like a generic old office with tables or desks and some other 60-something bald Jewish guy would smile to see Morris and offer him a drink as if he's seeing a friend from the old country. Maybe, maybe he was. and Maybe he'd bring over a few bolts of fabric or a post-it size swatch for my grandfather to sample. And the guy would say like, 29 cents a yard. And then Morris, he'd rub the sample between his fingers and say something like, eh, it's not a weave, it's a print. And then offer 19 cents. And the other guy might counter with 25. Then grandpa would say, how about 22 for 5,000 yards? Done. He'd later say something like, you know, volume talks louder than price, right? He'd buy these. That's why he had all the stores. The more stores he had, the cheaper he could buy the fabric. Then they, they'd both make a, a little note on their, their pads. They'd have these little pocket pads. And that was it. That was how business was done. And on and on like this, it went all day from Seymour's to Sammy's to Lenny's and eventually to lunch at Horn and Hard Arts that was an automat cafeteria on 38th Street where... Oh, God, it's hard to describe. There were these like little windows and you'd, you'd see the food behind the window and you'd put money in a thing and, and you could turn the crank and open the window and take a little plate of food, food on a plate, a, a china plate, you know, like a piece of pie or a little, a little sandwich or, you know, even drinks in there, in these little, in these little windows. And I remember he'd say something like, uh, I used to be able to get steak, a potato, coffee, and a piece of pie here for 25 cents. You know, it was impossible. But his own memories of New York, I guess, like mine, may have less to do with with the numbers than than the spirit. And as I rushed to class last week, you know, parking in as close to the same spot as I can remember from 50 years ago and went down the very same elevator and walked by some of the very same to the trade fabric stores that still dot the streets of the garment district, not as many, but a few, I wondered what was going on upstairs in those old offices. You know, the windows were, were weren't etched with, you know, Goldman's Imports or Cone Fabric Distributors. But I saw, you know, some hair salons, a real estate office, a immigration service, and some IT companies. And I imagine all that backroom haggling over fabric prices it probably happens online, if at all. And businesses the size of Weintraub's, they've been just trounced by conglomerates. But still, I felt connected to the city and, and its history in a way that I, I hadn't before. You know, no, I, I didn't take over the family business, 
but you know, neither neither had I truly ventured so far from what Morris did or where he did it. I was just another generation walking to work on the same sidewalk to go upstairs in the old Herald Tribune building and haggle over headlines and topic sentence with journalism students the way he did over thread count and cents per yard with his merchants. It's all part of this this joyful game. It's more an excuse to engage and, and a way of keeping the whole organism running as beneficially for everyone as possible. You know, if if Morris Weintraub taught me anything about business, it wasn't just to buy in quantity for a discount, but that our relationships are everything. They're not just a means to an end, but a reason to get up in the morning, to drag oneself into the city and, when necessary, to pay for parking. I've been thinking about haggling and negotiating and kinship since being invited to do a little teach-in for an online course called Kinship, an Exploration of Being Together. I wasn't really looking forward to it. I do too many online Zoom things with hopeful new agers looking for an easy feel-good or worse have fallen into the thrall of some sense-making guru with a new social program to save Gaia and upgrade humanity's collective software stack. But this kinship course was different. Smart, open-minded people, but discerning enough to keep me on my toes and even help me elevate my game. And that's largely because of the tone set by the course's founder, Hannah Close. She does lots of things. She's a writer, curator, researcher, and she calls herself a generalist, a recovering idealist, but still a fierce defender of the romantic intricacies of life. Sound familiar? It's my pleasure to introduce you to Hannah Close. So hi, Hannah Close. It's so good to have a conversation with you. I've been, you know, we've been kind of weaving in and out of each other's work for a bunch of years now, and I finally got to work with you on on the kinship project, do we call it? Uh, Can do. Can do. Yeah, it is kind of project. It's a project. It's a school of sort, a, a, a temporary autonomous zone educational experience. I mean, if I describe you're exposing a, a large, a few hundred people to uh, different approaches to kinship, you know, and looking at, I mean, kinship is such a nice way of talking about team human without the um, over-centering the humans, you know, because you can be, you can be akin with a lot. And I got to be a part of it. I know uh, uh, Tyson Yunkaporto is just did a a session with you. And he was an interesting influence on me too. And he's like, wait, you keep talking about find the others and you find the others is all these people. It's like, find the other life forms, man, find the ocean, find the rocks, find the grasses. <laughs> and I'm like, oh dude, you're so right. <laughs> I got so, I mean, even if I'm trying to break free of it, I'm still so trapped in sort of these enlightenment, you know, enlightenment and Judeo-Christian ideal ideas about what it means to be alive as you know man mankind <laughs> but you've done you've done some work in in thinking about that i mean and some of your your work with with the schumacher institute is, is sort of looking at 
as looking at that. I guess I'm interested first in how did you how did you come to all this to this work? Well, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't through a very intense mushroom trip some years ago. Uh, that kind of turned me onto this world of environmentalism uh, and activism, which then I remember I wanted to go to Schumacher College years and years ago, mm. but it was so expensive and so prohibitive. And then they lowered their fees a couple of years ago and I was just straight in there. And they started this course called Engaged Ecology. And when I say that, people think it's kind of like I'm a scientific ecologist, but it's got nothing to do with that really. It's like a combination of um, eco-philosophy and like practical making, like we kind of carve spoons and then talk about Heidegger at the same time. (laughs) So it's a really amazing kind of synthesis of stuff. That place is a is a magnet for crazy, interesting people and opportunities. It's an attractor. And you're in there right now? Yeah, I've got uh, until October. So I'm just about to start writing my dissertation, which will be on kinship. I like it. I really enjoy being able to geek out intellectually and like wax lyrical and talk about eco-philosophy and then ground it in lived experience and reality rather than just like you're in a classroom over here and it stays there. It just comes out into the world at Schumacher. Uh, right. And, and when you're talking about ecology, do you mean it like we normally think of ecology, like like kind of environmentalism and, and the planet? I kind of am trying to move away from, well, I'm not trying to move away from, but I feel like environmentalism has become like a dirty word mm. now. Anything green is kind of, labeled especially by the more sort of intellectual crowds as like reactive and unrigorous and like romanticizing nature like fetishizing indigeneity like all of these issues seem to come out of this which aren't really being addressed so kind of like you know I'm a feminist I guess I'm an activist but I don't go around saying like look at me I'm an ist look at all my ist (laughs) I mean the origin of the word ecology is oikos or something means home and everything everything is home everything is home depending on how you look at it yeah i guess it's the same eco as economics is sort of the business of the home mm-hmm. you know because it was about that was like home finances basically you're in an economy and the ecology is more the the it, it's more the the living system of home i guess yeah i kind of i kind of see it now as a ecology is like a meshwork of relationships. I see it as like the the, the, the matrix of relationships, whether mm. that's kind of human relationships or relationships with whatever, you know, it could be animals, but it could also be technology equally. So the thing I got interested in, it's funny, when I was speaking with your group was looking at sort of all the different paths to how we became kind of alienated from one another, you know, how those, how those relationships you're talking about, how they all broke down and how humans in particular feel separate from, from everything else, you know, and I traced it, I go with like, you know, Francis Bacon and empirical science, or I've tried to use language, you know, certainly Western language and all of the nouns. So everything you have a noun, you have a name and then it becomes other, but I mean, what have you been, what have you been finding as sort of the kind of the tributaries to this, this uh, uh, epidemic of alienation, this, this, I would argue, you know, uh, potentially catastrophic 
alienation that we're we're experiencing as humans now? I've been looking a lot at just the theme of belonging, like in general. And it started out with looking at the meaning crisis, which was the big kind of buzzword about a year or two, two years ago, like, oh, we're in a meaning crisis. And then it's a meta crisis. And now I'm coming in saying it's a belonging crisis, uh-huh. you know, kind of thing. But it really feels deeply that way. And I only really deeply came into contact with it last year. I was hiking in Scotland and I ended up on this tiny island in the Inner Hebrides called the Isle of Iona. And I picked up this book by the um, Irish poet John O'Donoghue called Eternal Echoes on Our Hunger to Belong. And I was like, eh, you know, this sounds like a bit gooey. And I read it and it just slapped me so hard in the face that everywhere I go, everyone I speak to, the core thing is like, I don't belong. I don't belong to myself, to my family, let alone the ecosystem, let alone having any feeling of like interbeing with you know, in an animistic way with the more than human world. It's like this deep, deep fracture of belonging. Mm. But then at the same time, even using the language of not belonging creates a chasm because you can't ever not belong, right? You can't bracket yourself from being a human on the earth. Like we're still belonging in a pretty hardcore way. It's just this abstraction that's separating us that has come from, I don't know, separation like the hyper narcissistic individualistic society that the modern world is it is weird because you know you look and again i don't want to you know over aggrandize whatever aboriginal or original people but but survival in the oldest of times depended on belonging you know, you really couldn't make it on your own. You needed some kind of a group to accept you around the fire or in the cave, you know, or in the hunt. And somehow along the way, our our understanding of survival became being able to be apart from that thing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like like a, a, I look at a, a, the kind of people I write about, you know, the Bezos or a Musk or any of these, you know, tech bro billionaire types. It's like they they... they created the the new aspiration seems to be what do they call self sovereignty which to me is like what does that even mean but you know what i mean it's like that succeeding is being able to be in a self-sufficient capsule of some kind and then Mm -hmm. you've made it then you can really speak because i don't need anybody and that's not it's a a fantasy yeah it's a fantasy and it's also just completely suicidal Right. Like it's, 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 I think it's basically self cannibalizing because that's just not the way. And I don't want to use like, what, what word am I going to use? Reality, nature, like so all of these are loaded and problematic, but let's just say that's not the way reality works. And I'm obviously not the authority on reality itself, but <laughs> so far being an alive human being walking around this planet, it seems to me that that's not how reality works. It's like completely entirely anti-ecological you know the the natural world just has no mechanisms related to that it seems to be something that humans um yeah have, have created that is just destroying life and sure we've managed to prosper and thrive economically for like a minute in geological time but ultimately it's hyper self-cannibalizing and kind of just stupid 
Yeah, it's not just self-defeating though. It's it's defeating of everybody. You know, because the way these people maintain their, you know, their prisons of luxury is by externalizing an awful lot of harm to everybody else. You know, it's it's so it's not just their problem anymore. You know, the the billionaire on the hill. It's our problem because of all the poisons they're trickling down from up there. As much as they are in their kind of little bubbles, they're not. It's impossible. Everything impacts everything else, you know, to an extent. You just cannot isolate yourself, you know, even if Bezos gets to the moon or whatever. I mean, good riddance, but he he's just can't do it. It's impossible to remove yourself as an organism from your ecosystem. It's like a fish kind of jumping out of its, you know, I mean, living in a bowl would be pretty shitty, but it's like a fish jumping out of its fish bowl. It's just so irrational which is so ironic given that we you know claim hyper rational species and yet everywhere i see this just irrationality i know you're just thinking about your dissertation work now but um where where are you thinking of going with it like looking at the the origins or looking at sort of ways back or back i hate to say back um ways through maybe yeah ways through is a good good way of looking at it i always get hung up on that I'm not entirely sure. All I know is that relationship writ large has become like the biggest theme in my life. And kinship is a particular form of relationship, right? It's not just, you know, it's a, it's a form of relationship that creates flourishing. And, you know, not all relationships do create flourishing. Some relationships are incredibly traumatic and poisonous. And so it's not to say like, oh, let's all just hold hands and yeah. form relationships everything and everyone because that's also not going to solve it but yeah i think i'll be looking at animism i don't know how much you know about animism but that has really blown me away it's given a language to something that i already felt but couldn't quite get everything that i'm talking about and doing is about moving away from this world of nouns into this world of verbs mm-hmm. and like and living and inhabiting and embodying. But animism is not like the rocks are alive. No. Right. That's what people think animism is, right? That's like the Victorian anthropologist Edward Burnett Tyler came up with this word animism in like 1872 or something. And it was basically this theory that said, you know, his words, primitive peoples anthropomorphize rocks and trees and worship them and they are therefore dumb and it's, <laughs> it's so ridiculous because modern biology is totally in tandem and like parallel and coherent with these animistic beliefs not not the old animism the new animism uh which basically says that the world is alive it's not like panpsychism where you just attribute consciousness to absolutely everything, but it's to do with an alive and agentic field of relations which continually and reciprocally bring each other into existence. It's like life arises through the contact between things, between me and you, between me and this glass of water. It's just continually bringing about aliveness mm-hmm. it's kind of almost a more sophisticated way of of framing gaia you know it's like gaia is great and convenient it's like okay there's this the mother earth spirit thing is one organism and it's sort of simple oh because you can kind of see that oh earth is this thing and those are the lungs and that's that but animism is is you don't have to personify 
the interplay of of life forms and and life energies. I hate to use words like energy because it always sounds so you know like a bad yoga teacher. But 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 is it sort of that? It's like it's just like almost Gaia is like a good kind of a kids book version in some ways of an animistic understanding of 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 the world or the universe. I guess. Yeah, I mean Gaia theory is about the the world as a, as a kind of self regulating organism in its entirety um and that's one really useful way to look at it for some reason i don't personally like vibe there's another good word vibe (laughs) with it but um i find it useful and people come to these things through whatever lens and i've i've kind of stopped trying to be like oh it should not be you know full of dogma or like religious language or whatever i now i'm just like well not is it right or wrong or is it morally good or bad but does it create more flourishing? And if people want to believe in that or believe in whatever, if it creates more flourishing, I'm going to go with that. Yeah, which is probably a better metric to use. I remember in Team Human, I was arguing, you know, anything that brings us together is kind of good. Anything that alienates us from each other is kind of bad. But there's sometimes you kind of want to be alone, and that's fine. You know, you can sometimes a little separation is good for one's one's. For mutual flourishing, I think if we spend six weeks apart, everyone's going to flourish a little better. So it's not like being apart is always um, is always a, a bad thing. It's funny though, you know. I can feel both of us doing it. It's it's not like we're afraid of getting canceled or something, like saying something that's going to get us gotcha'd on Twitter. But it's we. It's like I feel obligated to tread carefully less. It be, oh, this is going to sound spiritual, this is going to sound this, or this is going to sound that. And while in some ways it's good to have rigor, I mean, just having that that thing going on in the back of my head all the time is, is uh, it's a little oppressive too. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I, I totally hear you. You can't say anything or, <laughs> or, or do anything. And the difficult, the difficult and amazing thing at the same time is that when you start getting into this, I don't know, way of thinking, you start to see multiple perspectives. And as soon as you open your mouth and make a statement about reality, you take a step back and you go, huh, I kind of believe the opposite now. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it's not a lack of rigor. It's actually a sign of like epistemic agility. Like it's a good thing to be able to change your mind. But you can't do it publicly. <laughs> so, then they say you're changing your mind or you're not saying anything or, but before you said this, it's like, yeah, but, tomorrow I'll probably say it again. <laughs> exactly. No, it's a, it's a really, it's a really good skill to have, I think. But it does, it does feel a little bit, maybe lately or maybe cause I got older or something, but it feels a bit like a battlefield out there. You know, there's like, okay, here's the IDW and the rebel wisdom people and they're arguing about their sense making. And here's this side arguing about flourishing in this. And then there's those ones who are mad at this side and these ones who are mad at them. Like there's a, like there's a, a, a battle for who gets to frame the other one. Yeah. There's a, a really interesting woman called Indra Adnan who runs the Alternative UK, which is like a political platform. Um, and she talks about everybody's in a competition to define reality, mm. especially in the kind of liminal NGO social change world. You know, it's this, yeah. this is the army and this is the also, and I'm part of this, just I'm putting that in there. I'm part of this. This is the insidiousness 
and the con the contradictions abound because we're still operating within capitalism. We still have to like make money. People still have to make their personal brands. They have to sell shit to each other. They have to market themselves. You know, collaboration isn't really collaboration. It's a marketing strategy. And so we're still stuck. Right. A collab is a, a it's like a social media term for how you're pimping each other's stuff. Yeah. And it's like if you go back to kinship and you look at the difference between, you know, reciprocity is one of the core I hate the word function, but it's one of the core functions of kinship. And we're trying to do that. We're trying to do that. But all we're really doing is transacting. It's not a reciprocity. It's like an exchange, but it's a transaction. And I, I can feel the tension in people, myself being one of these people in the scene of having to play this weird game or at the same time being like, so are we going to start doing things differently now? Oh, no, there's, oh, shit, I've got to pay rent. Okay, personal brand, right. okay. And it's right. Just like, right. It's, it's something that happens a lot on in, in these conversations. I can feel sometimes when the person I'm speaking with remembers, oh shit, I've got to plug my book. All right. So, and, and then I can hear them artificially and guiltily. I can even sense their own guilt about doing it. It's like, well, as I said in my book, da, 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 because they're like, oh, that's the reason why I'm here. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The book is the excuse for being here. You're here because we get to, we get to interact with each other. But I get that feeling too of like, well, I mean, that goes back to risk too. The only real reason that it's dangerous to say the wrong thing is then some smart person or mean person will then say, oh, you know, she's not, you know, she's not rigorous or she's not up. We've disproved that. Last week, we disproved that theory on, uh, on animism or whatever it was. You know, it's like, oh, well, oh, well. Sorry. I mean, that's what I try to frame most of what I'm doing kind of as art or humanities or liberal arts, because then it's not as, it's not quite as dangerous as claiming I'm, I know something factual. Same here. <laughs> I mean, all I can really say is, you know, the only idea I have, which a lot of people have, and the thing that I just keep saying and that I feel really confident about, it's just don't be an asshole. Like I remember <laughs> at the end of every lecture at Schumacher College last year, you know, we were talking about phenomenology, animism, ontopoetics, new materialism, yada, yada, yada. And me and the other students would kind of chuckle at the end of the lecture and look at each other and say, so what you're saying is, don't be an asshole. Really, like this is what this all comes down to, like all of these theories of change, theories of a unified consciousness, like in-school theory, this, that, the other. It's just a distraction. Right. And just in case that's even triggering to anybody, we have nothing against assholes, right? The asshole is a beautiful part of any human being and should be enjoyed or not. Whatever your preference is, we don't mean the asshole, right? Again, I'm just wanting to make sure because there's probably some anal lovers here on listening to this very conversation. So don't be a, a bad person. Don't be mean to others. Don't that's all we mean. This is this really, <laughs> it really touches on something though, right? Because it's like we're afraid. I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's like we're afraid of having assholes. We're so afraid of death. We're so afraid of the mess of assholes. Of course, we're like this, you know, exploding chaos everywhere. We can't help it. But 
this is what civilization means. Yeah. Civilization is like anti-asshole. And I'm talking about like asshole as in the asshole on your body. Like civilization does not let that exist. It is weird. I remember, you know, um, me and, a, and an artist named Dean Chamberlain were spending a lot of time with Timothy Leary at the very end of his life. And it got bad at the end. He had cancer, you know, and at the end of life, he would just, you know, uh, go to the uh, uh, eliminate, you know, on, uh, he would just have terrible, you know, diarrhea, whatever, in, in not in the bathroom. And to, to, and he was a mentor to us. I mean, I know he did bad things. He was mean to some people, whatever, but he was a mentor to us and loved us and we loved him. And, you know, Dean and I uh, took him, he was soiled, you know, we took him from his bed and got him into the bathtub, you know, and he's a man who had such dignity and such ego and to have to surrender to his two friends to wash the shit off his body in a tub, you know, and I'm so, I was so embarrassed for him in the first, you know, few minutes of it. And then I felt, uh, it sounds so strange. I felt so privileged. I felt privileged to be in the position of, uh, of addressing this situation with another human being of try mm -hmm. of, uh, of, you know, and being with someone when they die, again, it's like poop and death. To be with someone when they die, at first it's like, oh shit, I'm the one alone with the person when they're, then it's like, oh my God, what greater mm. honor is there to be than to be with someone on their, on their exit? And that's the weird thing. Civilization does somehow make these things, uh, make these things taboo, right? Yeah. It's a really good metaphor, actually, that we are all covered in shit. And we're kind of like walking around with this metaphorical shit and no one wants to acknowledge it. And it's not this kind of, you know, I've been through a, I went through a very new age phase a few years ago. I went through a psychedelics phase. I went through like spiritual yoga, totally appropriating other cultures phase. And it was all this kind of, we're all just perfect. We're all just perfect under this. And if only we could realize that we're perfect, then the world wouldn't be so fucked up. But what is perfect? It's not human. It's not. It's like perfection is anti-life. It's anti-aliveness. Mm. And there's something really raw and alive and like even erotic when you just recognize that you and the other person are covered in shit. It brings <sighs> you into relation because perfection puts you out of relation. When you realize that someone else is flawed and they mirror your flaws, you can go, ah. Oh, Oh, thank God I can relax around you. Okay, you know, yeah. cool. let's do things. Well, we're and we're not even. I mean, it's not. Uh, well, with Skype or whatever we're using, it doesn't. It's not quite the same. But when you see another person, it's basically two gut biomes meeting each other, and we're just our human bodies. We're just the the conveyors. We're just like the automobiles in which our gut biomes. <laughs> You know, get to get to meet and think. Oh, do we want to share some food or you know get a little of your bacteria in mine? Uh, it's like you know, because I know people always marvel when they find out. Oh my god, what? There's more bacteria than there is me. Yeah, there's more. <laughs> there's more of them. They might be using you more than you than you're using them. Even um, using is, a, of course, it's it's very it's a subject object, but uh, it goes to that. It goes to that erotic animism you're talking about, that we're in this in very intimate relationship with all these other life forms all the time, little mites and things crawling all over us, but they're part of, you know, you get rid of them all and you just die. 
right? Because it's yeah. so, you know, so we are mud, we are poop, we are. Yeah, absolutely. It's this whole, it kind of goes back to the metaphors we have for ourselves, right? I mean, don't get me started on metaphor because I have a whole obsession with that. But this idea that we're an encased, contained being, which is a partial truth, Right. And there's another thing that maybe we can talk about a bit like partial truths. What the hell is that? <laughs> uh, not alternative facts, partial truth different. That we're these, yeah, we're these kind of, as you said, like sovereign contained beings that are just impenetrable. But the truth is, like, the porosity that we have is just profound. But because it's not like broke there in our face or something, we, we just don't realize it. But we can't live in vacuums and yet we pretend that. We do. I know. Just- and without breaking any of, you know, amazing Randy's rules of the, uh, you know, that there's not allowed to be weird stuff, but you cannot even, you can have your back to the door, you know, and some person walks in and you can feel the room change. You can feel your own body change because there's an organism that's beating in a different way that's now in your space. Sorry, there's no, you know. No matter what you're wearing or or what you are, it's it's all intermeshed. Yeah, this is one of the things that I'm I'm really obsessed with at the moment as well. Is this I call it a paradox between I call it the paradox of the individual, but it's like you're an individual. You are sovereign to some extent in some conceptual abstract land. You know, you do do make things happen and you do control a small amount of your own reality, but at the same time you're totally not an individual. Like you are totally codependent on the entire world of biotic and abiotic and symbolic and metaphysical relations around you, right? And so when I first came into contact with that idea, I was like, well, hang on a minute, because, you know, my identity rests on being one of these things. I can't be two things that are dissonant. Like how can I be an individual and not an individual at the same time? I have to pick one. Isn't that how... Uh-huh. reality works oh no it isn't oh okay brain scramble that has been a really big thing for me it's like how do I go about my life as an individual you know taking responsibility for my shit not spreading it everywhere mm. because that's the beauty of being an individual is that you can choose not to be an asshole among many other things and then how do I inhabit this like continuously reciprocal thing how do I get to grips with the fact that I'm not special, that I'm not this unique standalone being in this vacuum, right? And that's, I feel like a lot of people, myself included, really struggle with trying to identify with both. Yeah. I mean, the way um, I've been doing it again is with your with your moving to verb rather than noun, you know? So there's certain processes that I can be relatively autonomous about. So it doesn't mean that me is me and my, my boundaries are my boundaries. But, you know, I would say yesterday someone was saying about what, what we can do for Ukraine and all. And I was saying, well, one of the things, and I know it sounds new agey, but one of the things we can do is bear witness and metabolize the collective trauma. Because mm-hmm. I'm in relative safety or actually almost, almost, you know, what feels like close to absolute safety. So I have the safety to metabolize some of their trauma as part of the organism that they're in. And that's not not real. That's <laughs> that is real. I mean, it should also I change a whole bunch of behaviors to try to relieve um the stress there, but you know th- that's sort of where 
where I feel like I've got some individuality is over is over that on how can I how can I kind of contribute or metabolize or that's why I use the word metabolize a lot lately, almost like different cells in my body will metabolize certain traumas or stresses. You know that that's sort of what we can do, but boy, that the 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 notion of the individual. I mean, I. I been writing for years, it feels so invented, such like a Renaissance invention of the Vitruvian man, you know, or the revival of the Greek, I guess, uh, or Roman Vitruvian man is, is it was a, it was a, it's a convenient working hypothesis to get through certain activities, you know, but it's not really yeah. there. It's interesting because you kind of, and I'm speaking from my own failed relationships here like you you have to be good and I just want to uh, highlight a difference between individuality and individualism because we, we live in this culture of like hyper individualism right it's the ism mm. that makes it it's just runaway individuality it's not that being an individual is bad and perhaps the whole branded notion of the individual yeah that's pretty bad but just the core notion of the individual isn't bad in and of itself and when you come into relationship with anyone or anything you have to have a grip on yourself as an individual to come into healthy and good relation you know like in a romantic relationship mm. for example you go into that relationship and you're like you haven't looked at your traumas you've like ignored your childhood or whatever and not saying that you need to be perfect and have achieved all of these therapeutic goals or whatever but if you are going in as like a bag of reactivity and projection mm. you're not going to love can't be in that relationship like only infatuation and attachment and extraction can exist in that relational dynamic because you're not relating to the other person from your core you're relating to them from your I don't know, this like fabricated identity and it's just totally anti-relational. And so you need to just get your own shit to be in relation. Not all of it, right? This yeah. is another damaging idea that we need to be like fully healed so that we, we can be worthy of love. <laughs> which well, because fair. your relationship, I mean, if you're doing it, your relationship can help you work through a lot of that. You know, the other person could be, oh no, you're not talking to me. You're, you know, <laughs> talking to someone from your past this didn't just yeah. happen here yeah yeah you have to do it in this is another one of those both and situations you have to do it in the relationship right you can't turn up to a relationship and be like okay you know i've studied kinship i've been on the kinship course now i know what i'm doing okay <laughs> i'm gonna come into relation with you with all of these ideas and it's gonna be perfect it's like no you're gonna fuck up the real sign or sort of like yeah, signpost towards a healthy relationship is that you can go into that and be okay with it. And like, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to try. Yeah. I mean, I would also be the, the, in theory, the key to a successful civilization or society would be yeah. that we would do that. You know, you just come in with good, I mean, it's not all of it, but you come in with good faith. It's certainly a lot of it. Yeah, for sure. And just like, for me, this is cancel territory because the whole social change world it's like, abolish the individual, abolish the individual. This is like the most anti-human kind of thing. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater on that one. I think we'd be missing a trick 
Like we need to hold both. Yeah. Well, they get rid of the individual. They also can, they also get rid of intentionality, you know, mm-hmm. which is a little tricky. It feels like in some ways that they've bought uh, the kind of Richard Dawkins style atheism, you know, that, that human beings are just responding to the memes and, and, and structural things around them that we're, you know, it doesn't matter what you meant. It doesn't matter if you were trying to do this. It just matters, you know, what I say the effect of what you did was. And that's like, well, that's not that's not gonna help so much either. You know, it's just it 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 gets so it gets so hopeless. You know, I've I've had such arguments with those people that I just wrote about one in the in that next book, the kind of argument I got in with Richard Dawkins and his people, where I was trying to argue and maybe you can help with I was trying to argue that we live in a moral universe you know that there's that there is some kind of intrinsic right or wrong and that things can either that the universe is sort of somehow leaning towards kinship and and life does lean toward for lack of a better word toward love you know mm-hmm. and they're like Rushkoff, you're fucking crazy. You know, that there's that there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing going on here. There, you know, and your even your very consciousness is an illusion perpetrated by your DNA in order to get you the animal to, you know, keep it moving in subsequent generations. I mean, you don't see it that way, do you? No. <laughs> no. But you know, the really interesting thing is there's this whole like emerging field in academia called new materialism and it's trying to save not save materialism it's trying to look at materialism in a different way so it's not the kind of reductionist materialism that says you're just like a bunch of atoms vibrating it says you're a bunch of atoms vibrating isn't that fucking amazing like wow <laughs> like how like as if that's nothing as if that's not incredibly like poetic and erotic and profound and just like bursting forth with mystery like can you explain that like no science can try but it's it's not satisfying right and this doesn't mean like oh let's just default to hardcore mysticism or religiosity it's just uh, metaphysically speaking it's just profoundly interesting and no one knows what's going on it's a form of materialism that allows for awe (laughs) <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it, it holds space for for rationality and intuition. And these are all false dichotomies anyway, but like art and science, yeah. you know, technology, like it holds this. And it says that this was uh, what we were studying in my last module at Schumacher called Making Connections. We were carving spoons and weaving willow baskets and looking at the kind of poetics of matter and saying, hang on a minute, this is just, this is not an inert, lifeless process there's some kind of like becoming with the materials there's something else going on here and i can use whatever highfalutin you know fancy pants academic language i can but there's a deeper process i don't know alchemy going on with making and being with materials and looking at matter not as an inert thing but instead you know that's how we come into contact we're matter Mm. We're all matter. Like there would be no life without matter. The trouble I get in, I don't know if it's trouble, and I'm, I'll admit it here, but hopefully anybody critical would, would have tuned off by now. Um, you know, when I was playing with my daughter and she had these stuffed animals and there's one alpaca 
um, she had named Wa. And we played with Wa and hugged Wa and looked at Wa so much in Wa's little eyes that I came to feel that Wa was real. Mm-hmm. And I know Wa's not alive, but if something happened to Wa, I would be, if Wa got thrown out or crushed, oh, it would, I, it's Wa, right? It's Wa, Wa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear you. That's not just projection, you. though, either. It's why well, was invested with soul, even if it, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, <laughs> I guess it's your daughter's relationship with Wa, right? It's not like your daughter and then Wa is like separate beings in a vacuum. There's some kind of, you know, and I'm going to sound super new agey now, but there's an energy, you know, there's the relationality and the meaning. And the joy that Wa brings your daughter, I'm assuming it's a joyful relationship. Oh, yeah. Rejection and trauma or whatever. But that's something. It's not just about the object, right? It's the space between. That's that's something. It's not nothing. Right. I mean, I know you'd go to Dawkins and you'd say, well, it's because look at Wa's eyes. And Wa's eyes activate an instinctual response to, you know, two eyes, that when, especially when you're young and you're, 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 the baby is scanning for eyes to make eye contact in order to engender, you know, altruistic uh, behavior from the others in the, <laughs> in the tribe. It's like, well, maybe, you know, and you can always find that. But it's like, so what on a certain level, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like you could analyze every one of our inflections and hand gestures and everything I'm doing and say, oh, look, that's all neurolinguistic programming manipulation. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm not doing it consciously. It's just yeah. It's yeah, called rapport. It's, it's rapport. It's relationality. It's like I – so I, I used to be really afraid of writing poetry because, you know, poetry can be very wanky. You know, people think you're a bit wanky for writing poetry, especially if you share it. And why am I saying this? Because I moved to Ireland uh, at the start of the pandemic. I had spent five years in London and really needed to be away. And I got to Ireland and I had something really weird happen. I just started spewing out poetry. And it wasn't that wanky, in my opinion. Like yeah. I just started coming out and I was like, what is going on here? What? Why? I haven't like learned how to write poetry. And it was something to do. And now this is going to sound really whack, but... The land was speaking through me. And that, that does not mean that I'm like the chosen one mm. for the land. I, the land has nominated me <laughs> as the voice of the land. I don't know. Um, but there was something going on in that dynamic. And it was all metaphor. Like poetry is doesn't make any sense. You know, it works by gesturing towards something. It can never quite grasp it. And it's kind of the same thing where it's like, okay, you know, we can get into the realm of symbolism, myth, and metaphor. And it's just, it seems to be, especially in animistic cultures and many other types of culture, the way the world brings itself forth through in within us. You know, it's not like a projection that we slap on top of reality mm. to represent reality. It is reality. Well, it's almost like it triangulates reality. There's like the the poet, the phenomenon, and then the poem, you know? <laughs> and they're in this, they're in this kind of triad together. Yeah, it is triad. This is so interesting. And I mean, I could go on and on about this kind of thing, but the, 
like the alchemy of relationship is the two things coming together, right? And then the, it's like something is born every time mm. something or someone relates. There's a third thing. It's never just me and you, right? There's some. There's another thing. We're having a baby. We That's, are having uh, a baby. Well, that makes everything <laughs> erotic, right? If you're always yes. having a baby with everyone and everything you encounter, oh my God. Like if you look at... um going back to Andreas's erotic ecology thing, you look at Eros and it's, you know, people are like, oh, it's just sex. It's just sex. And it's like, yeah, sex is part of it, but it's not just sex. Eros is this, it's reproduction. It's reproduction. And it doesn't just mean human baby reproduction. It's like reproduction of aliveness through contact. That's as far as I can tell how life works. Right. And the isolation and alienation, that's why a civilization would end or the whole thing would end. It's because we're no longer, you know, we could still be, we could still be fucking, but if we're not really, you know, it, it erotically intertwingled, you know, with everything, then it starts dying off. You know, the, the, you get, it gets, it gets dead and gangrenous. Yeah. And that's, that's the really sad thing, right? That's why we kind of, I miss this both end situation again because we're we're in constant reciprocity with the natural world and there's nothing I don't have anything against abstraction like I think it's amazing we it's a, it's a natural thing mm. right some people are like, oh language is so destructive we should stop using words <laughs> <laughs> language grows out of the ground language grows out of the ground like there's it's coming from the earth there's nothing there's nothing alien about this thing, right? But this whole idea around demonizing abstraction uh, has kind of, again, thrown lots well, of babies. Well, it's because out. of capitalism. I mean, loves abstraction and unabstraction. You know, it's, it goes exponential on itself. You know, so, uh -huh. you know, there's the, there's the, the, Land is fine, and property is one level of abstraction. Then a mortgage, then a derivative, then a credit default swap. Then a you know, it's those layers of abstraction, and the symbol systems they rep that 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 are used to represent them that then take precedence over what's happening on the ground. So it's just a matter of balancing it rather than you know, you know, as McKenna would say, you know, we're we're going to have the opportunity to rise from the chrysalis of matter as pure consciousness. Sweet idea. I don't believe that's possible. You know? <laughs> Me neither. It's kind of, yeah, it's not good. It's not, matter it's and consciousness, because matter, con matter is consciousness, is sort of the animism part of it. You know, that you can't, yeah. you can't escape that. Yeah, but the, the the other thing, I, I, the the real reason I wanted to could call you was I was in a crisis that I thought you could help me with, which you know, two different people who I respect have said, Doug, you know, I think you've got to give up with this team human metaphor because uh, it doesn't work. I mean, team human, the original metaphor was. I came up with it when I was in an argument with Ray Kurzweil about whether human beings should be allowed to survive in the digital future. And he said, oh, you're, you know, he said, oh, you rushed you're just saying that because you're human. And that's when I said, fine, I'm on team human, guilty. Um, and it was in that context with like humans versus robots and all, I didn't mind, I'm going to be on team human. But a lot of people are saying that, that it's like centering or elevating humanity above all the other species and beings and someone gave me i've got it here uh, donna haraway's staying with the trouble you know where it's like humans and jellyfish and coral reefs and we're all part of one big swirly smushy thing yes but 
as a human, we are, we are special in, we are unique. We are distinct. We humans, I feel like humans, if for no other reason than that, we fucked this place up. Human beings have a particular responsibility to shepherd life back to uh, some reasonable place, don't we? Isn't there a calling all humans? We must do the. Isn't that a- appropriate on some level, or am I am I am I not seeing it? You're a terrible person. No, it's, it's <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, it's this is a funny thing because it's I I'm totally on team human, right? This is ah, it's so frustrating. And it's a part of a wider truth, narrative, story, reality, whatever. It's a part of it. It's a part of it. And the problem is when you say, going back to what we were saying earlier, when you make any kind of statement, you can only ever make it, first of all, from a partial perspective and second of all, from a human perspective. Like You just are a human. You, you cannot not be. And then you kind of have... Like, we're talking about connecting to the more-than-human world, let alone asking people to start you know, trying to practice animism with rocks. We can't even talk to each other. I know. We can't even talk to each other. And it's not like we should privilege human relationships over everything else. But human relationships are, I think, the most fertile and immediate ground for us to come into like explicit forms of reciprocity and relation, which we can then take out to the wider world. That said, a lot of humans hate other humans and would rather just go and live in nature and meditate and sit on waterfalls and have nothing to do with anyone ever again. And they would probably say, you know, fuck you, team human is an anthropocentric, like colonizing Western, whatever, whatever. And I don't know. I don't agree with that, but I can, I can see both sides of it. I guess it's okay. So as long as we understand team human is a, is a provisional construct. It's not saying this is, so I hate the word is anyway, but you know, cause is is so is he, um, you know, so, so defined, but it's, I guess it's that it's, you know, we're on team right now for an hour a week, you're on team human. And then next, you know, then you're at the kennel and you're on team dog, you know, and that's, and that's fine. Team tree, team nature, team coral reef, um, you know, or team, team, I mean, team human is a subset of team life for sure, but it's Mm -hmm. a good, it's a good starting place. It's a respite from the storm. It's some other, here, talk with some other people. You know, it's like they got those men's clubs and stuff, you know, I mean, most of them get a little too Robert Bly or whatever for me or, or what rebel wisdom now for me, but, but I get it. Okay, you dudes, you want to go sit around and be with some blokes? I, you're allowed as long as you know you accept anyone who considers himself a bloke. You know, then then it's all good. You know, then you come back out again and see the an other than bloke. So I guess that's really it. It's like we humans do have some common challenges. You know, so it's okay for us to kind of separate off from the rest of life for a little bit to say, uh, let's talk some of this human talk, and then we'll get mm-hmm. back to our bigger <laughs> our bigger role in the biome. Well, it's like you can do both at the same time as well, right? Yeah. I think people, maybe if you say team human, people are like, well, who are you playing against? Who's the opposition? Right. What nature? At the moment, it's nature. Like humans are shitting all over nature and trying to extract and colonize nature still. 
you know, even in the world of environmentalism. And so it's like the team, I guess, maybe implies another team. I don't know. That's the, the thing. Yeah. And I never really thought that. That's what Jaron Lanier said right away. He goes, oh, you mean team human against team robot? He goes, that'll never work. And I guess if that, if anything, I meant against uh, team human against anything that doesn't like humans, <laughs> anything that's against human flourishing, anything that's separating us from one another. But, but yeah, yeah that's the thing with teams. Most people, un, uh, 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 most people think of teams as part of uh, agonistic play. So team A against team B. And I didn't mean that there's another team. I just meant that being human is a team sport. But, you know, I guess there'd be another team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see, your, I see your predicament. And I, I hear you. I think, uh, I mean, as I said, I'm, I'm definitely on team human. Like, we need to also be careful of just this constant self-flagellation when it comes to stuff like this, of like, you said this thing, which means you must believe that everything else is incorrect. Oh, you said you like mangoes. Does that mean you hate oranges? Do you hate bananas? <laughs> You're not considering apples. What about grapes? What about those poor grapes? <laughs> I this know. Is the poor little things. They didn't even make the. They didn't even make the paragraph. It's really hard to be a human and say words. Yeah, but we're trying, and thankfully, there's people like you. Humans like you, humans and others like you, who are, 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 you know, there was this, it's funny, right? My friend Ari Wallach was talking about that, uh, the moment at the Oscars, not the one that, the big one with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, the, the hitting of the guy, but when um, Lady Gaga went out with Liza Minnelli mm -hmm. and uh, Liza Minnelli was kind of overwhelmed by the, uh, uh, the crowd and the teleprompters and all, and 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 Lady Gaga goes, I, I, I got you. She kind of leaned, I got you. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like, that's the whole thing, you know. <laughs> that's the whole thing to me. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah. It's really, um, it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing, and you know, the whole thing for me as well is vulnerability right it's like i didn't see that oscars thing but there was a vulnerability and i don't know lady gaga mm. or whatever was was seeing that and it's such a no one wants to show their vulnerability and then you've got the people who are like oh vulnerability is great for marketing and then they turn up this like over earnest kind of like faux humility shit to score woke points yeah. and stuff and you're like, you know and it's like real vulnerability again brings us into relation saying hey you're covered in shit i'm covered in shit too let's yeah. come into relation if humans can be in that and hold each other when they're in that i mean what what is that if not humanity really yeah and humanity re consciously rediscovering the state of all life anyway you know if the humans are sp special if we are it's that we can go we, we can make the conscious choice to embrace that reality rather than run from it. Whereas everything else that's alive is pretty normal with it. You know, they're not freaked out by it the way we are. There's no hiding. There's no like, this whole concept of civilization really pisses me off. And it's not to say like, when I say that, a lot of people go, what well, do you think we should all go back to like, you know, sitting around campfires and being cave people and blah, blah, blah. No, I do not mean that. Like, I do not mean anything to do with that. I just mean, let's stop the facade because we all hate it. 
we all hate it. I don't know anyone who likes it really deep down, right? And it's not like, okay, start spilling your guts, you know, on the internet, which some people have done, but it's just like, and authenticity is such a loaded word and what even is authenticity, yeah. right? That's a whole, that's a whole other thing. And that's also now a marketing thing. Yeah. Everything's, everything's turned into a fucking brand. That's the thing. And even the language, the stuff that you say, you know, you, you'll watch as you, as you move through this world, the stuff that you say, you'll see the words pilfered. Recom- re- and recombined into marketing, into cultism, into, you know, some most probably, you know, the uh, 40-something white dude getting followers by taking it and somehow making it compatible with corporate capitalism and thus amplifying it way more <laughs> than you ever can because you're not leveraging those market forces to do it. And it's, 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 I'm, I'm no longer being discouraged by it because I'm finding more and more people um, who recognize, who can see the difference, who can, you know, and that was the thing I was, I was not, I'll be honest, I was not looking forward to doing the kinship thing because I thought, oh, fuck, it's going to be two or three hundred new agey people looking and going, and I was looking at the faces of the people, the intelligence, the the quality of the questions and the quality of the, the comments going on. It's like, oh, man, they're not just tracking me. They've been tracking this for the last 20 years. They're in <laughs> they are they are in this conversation already and it was like wow that was so encouraging to see that we are not alone they're they're, they're the the population is filled with with quiet but but common there's a there's a, a common uh, rising understanding of everything you're talking about this is not some erudite weird Thing. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. People are are, and I don't. I don't mean it in any bad way. People are making sense, you know, mm-hmm. and distinguishing between sense making and making sense, you know, mm-hmm. um, right now. So it was. It was. Uh, I, I felt like what started as like, oh no, an obligation turned into such a gift and privilege. Mm-hmm. Boy, it was so reassuring on such a profound level. It was like another version of we got this. No, we really. Don't worry, we got this. And I really, I felt that. So thanks for that. I'm really glad it didn't turn out to be as shit as you thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. No, that's great. And it's it's funny, you know, sometimes we, I get accused of like being too green on new age or whatever, but it's because we're, we're not, we're not like hardcore doomer or like blokey sense making vibes either. We're just doing shit. And people are always like, oh, what are you, um, are you going to try and change the world with this thing? Like, is it going to be some grandiose thing where you get all these sense makers on and people are going to talk about theories of change and sort of present their solutions? And I'm just like, look, I've tried that. I've been involved with that. It doesn't work. All I can do, all I can do, and this isn't some like me being like, I'm so humble, look at mm. me. It's just I can just gather people, just gather people. Like, okay, if, if we really are fucked, you just got to keep gathering people. Mm-hmm. There's something that comes out of that and I think what you were just speaking about is people their wits end like no more games no more platitudes you know I think that's why your session was so popular and like Tyson Young Porter's session as well and Charlotte Ducan like just cut through the bullshit cut through the bullshit because we went through this phase in the social change world of like you know 
Let's imagine a new future. Let's create a new narrative. That's not how it works, right? We have to be honest. Let's get the mirror out, shit on face. Oh, okay, let's go. Right. Yeah. From the ground up, moment to moment, person to person, you know? And that was why it was so beautiful. You found the others, you know? <laughs> you really did. You really did. And that's that's diff different people have different ways of doing it. But you'd put a flag in the sand somehow that that uh attracted people who they recognized it somehow. They 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 recognized it and 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 arrived. So, you know, congratulations yeah. on that. And I think that's just the beginning, you know? I think that's just the beginning. And I'll gather, I'll gather with you anywhere you anywhere you want to gather. Count me in. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm glad. I'm so glad. And it's really, it's all an experiment. I have no idea what I'm doing. I told you earlier, I'm not an expert. I have no idea. Nobody should listen to me, but I am a human living a human life. And I have that much knowledge as everyone does really. You know, and it's all relevant. It's all, it's all relevant in my opinion. It is. It is. And well, you made me feel relevant in, in ways I hadn't for a while. So thanks for that and relatable. <laughs> and and thanks thanks for being on Team Human. I know this is not you don't usually get centered yourself. You 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 center and and provide platforms to others. But I wanted to connect with you, and then thought, what better way than um, to do it in front of a, a hundred thousand Team Humanites? So. <laughs> Something like that. And now we've got a lot of people. I would every time I think I'm gonna stop, you know, then I think, well, gosh, if a hundred thousand people gathered in a big field to hear you have a conversation, would you just leave them there and not, you know, <laughs> would you not say, Of course not. You're gonna go. So um as long as I find people with with things to say and that I wanna have good conversations with, you know, keep it going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is my favorite thing to do. Mm. I love I love the way Tyson Young Porter talks about yarning. Yarn. Exactly. Exactly. Well thanks. Thanks for having me on Kinship. Thanks for being on Team Human. You're welcome. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Hannah Close. She's researcher at the education platform Advaya and a student of engaged ecology at Schumacher College. You can find out about her by going to hannahlclose.com or just go to teamhuman.fm and you'll see all the links about Hannah and all of our guests. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our opening song is from Fugazi, and our closing song is from Mike Watt at Bass. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.